0: Right. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Monday, April 12th. Today, back in the day, on April 12, 1861, the American Civil War began. Oregonians had an unusual role in the Civil War. After Fort Sumter fell to the Confederacy, the government withdrew federal troops that were stationed in Oregon. Shortly thereafter, Colonel George Wright requested permission from Oregon Governor John Whitaker to form a cavalry regiment. If granted, it would be Oregon's first cavalry regiment. He was concerned that the loss of federal troops would leave Oregonians vulnerable. His request was granted, but the cavalry struggled to develop. Multiple changes in leadership presented a hurdle in recruiting volunteers. Additionally, Oregonians were hesitant to let Californians volunteer, which further slowed the recruitment process. Finally, in December of 1861, companies A through F were organized and mustered into the Army. But even then, Oregon soldiers still encountered problems. They rarely stayed together and spread out to Fort Walla Walla, Fort Vancouver, and Fort Dalles. Some of them even spent their time constructing roads. According to the terms of enlistment, after 3 years, each volunteer would be officially finished with their duty. Soldiers earned $31 a month and an additional $100 bounty at the end of their term. They also would be given 160 acres of land. Few men chose to serve all 3 years. Today back in the day on April 12th, 1887, the Morrison Street Bridge officially opened. Today, the Morrison Street Bridge is one of the busiest bridges in Portland, but you may be surprised to learn that city officials initially objected to it. On April 12, 1887, East Portland hosted a ceremony in honor of the official opening of the Morrison Street Bridge. At the time, the bridge represented an unprecedented success. At 1,650 feet in length, the Morrison Street Bridge had the largest span of any bridge West of the Mississippi. It was also the first bridge to connect the east and west banks of the Willamette River. Despite this, the April 12th ceremony was small and disappointing. In the late 1800s, West Portland was well established. It housed the official city government and the majority of Portland's businesses and infrastructure. But the Morrison Street Bridge meant that East Portlanders would finally have access to to West Portland, and West Portlanders weren't pleased. Despite the significance of the Morrison Street Bridge, the mayor and city council members refused to fund or even come to the opening ceremony. According to an article published in the Oregonian on April 12th, there was supposed to be, quote, procession, music, and congratulatory speeches made. However, as the project did not seem to meet with a very responsive spirit, the matter went by default, uh, and it was concluded to quietly open the bridge without any public demonstration. Once the Morrison Street Bridge opened, East Portland quickly developed. The growth caused an economic burden on East Portlanders, and they eventually chose to consolidate with West Portland. The consolidation meant that both parts of Portland would be responsible for the costs of development. Though East Portlanders initially criticized the bridge, its opening ultimately brought the city closer together. Today, back in the day on April 12, 1916, beloved children's author Beverly Cleary was born in McMinnville, Oregon. For the first part of her childhood, Cleary lived on a farm in Yamhill. She later moved to Portland during the Great Depression. Cleary attended both Chafee College and the University of California, Berkeley, and was later a children's librarian in Yakima, Washington. Though she had wanted to write children's books since she herself was a child, she didn't publish her first novel until she was 34 years old. That book, titled Henry Huggins, centered on the adventures of a boy and his dog who lived on Clickitat Street. Many of you will recognize the Northeast Portland Street, which was also home to the other Cleary characters, Beezus and Ramona Quimby. Cleary grew up on the nearby Hancock Street and said that, as a child, Clickitat reminded her of, quote, the sound of knitting needles. By the end of her career, Cleary had published over 40 books and won numerous prestigious awards. She is considered to be the most famous Oregon children's book author in state history, In 2008, in honor of her impact, the merged Hollyrood Elementary and Fernwood Middle School were renamed the Beverly Cleary School. Cleary had an impeccable ability to create authentic and believable children's characters. Ramona Quimby is perhaps her best example of this. Precocious, meddlesome, adventurous, and imaginative, Ramona was an unusual character, especially as a female protagonist who made her first appearance in 1950. Cleary, who in part identified with Ramona, described her as, quote, a girl who could not wait. Life was so interesting, she had to find out what happened next. As many of you already know, on March 25th of this year, at 104 years old, Beverly Cleary died. She has said her greatest accomplishment was, quote, the fact that children love my books. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines We have an interview with Emma Nathanson, a reporter for Street Roots on Youth Activism. X-Ray. But first up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Last week, racism was declared a public health crisis in Multnomah County. This declaration received unanimous approval by county commissioners. It comes as chair of the county commissioner's board, Deborah Kofori, is getting ready to release a $3 billion budget plan later this month. Kafori has called the disparity in social conditions that different communities face stark, egregious, and persistent, but not inevitable. Though the proclamation of this public health crisis did not come with any proposed funding or associated money, addressing the crisis will likely be a priority throughout Kafori's budget plan. As part of this declaration, decision-makers have been called upon to collect and analyze data with the understanding that it be, quote, collected in a trauma-informed, culturally appropriate manner. By establishing racism as a public health concern, officials are hoping for a new lens to address local death and disease rates, the county's response to the pandemic, and the rise of gun violence in the community. Commissioner Lori Stegman, who represents East Portland and Gresham, has called this an opportunity to demonstrate commitment through actions. And public health director Jessica Guernsey was quick to acknowledge historical failures within the field. She noted that entire communities have been knowingly withheld care or even completely ignored in the past. But by identifying racism as a matter of public health, Multnomah County hopes to confront the crisis with renewed fervor. And now it's time for your daily dose of data According to the Oregon Health Authority, there were 761 new cases of COVID-19 in Oregon reported on Saturday. It was the first time since early February that over 700 new cases were found in a single day. An additional 499 new cases were reported on Sunday, but no new deaths over the weekend. As of Sunday, 2,440 Oregonians have died from the virus. Due to rising cases, six Oregon counties, including Multnomah County, returned to a high-risk level. In Portland, this means that restaurants, previously allowed to welcome visitors at 50% capacity, have returned to 25%. Additionally, problems associated with the production of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine have resulted in an expected 88% decrease in these vaccine doses this week. Whereas last week, the state received a record-breaking 61,400 Johnson & Johnson doses, the federal government will only be shipping 7,300 this week. Worse still, top health officials in Oregon are expecting even fewer Johnson & Johnson doses next week, just 2,000. According to Patrick Allen, the Oregon Health Authority director, these substantial reductions could complicate plans to make vaccines available, for all Oregonians 16 and over, by April 19th. Fortunately, shipments of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which remain the majority of doses distributed, remain relatively consistent. Considering vaccine doses from all approved companies, Oregon is expected to receive 20% less doses this week than last. Various construction companies and design firms have accused Nike of underpaying. As Nike continues its enormous expansion in and around Beaverton, multiple companies it has hired say the footwear giant owes as much as $110 million. Most impacted is Hoffman Construction, Nike's longtime contractor, who asserts they alone are owed more than $48 million. This has been one of the biggest construction projects in Oregon State history and has been more than six years in the making. Nike has declined to comment on the validity of these companies' claims, citing the inherent complexity of a project this size. According to Hoffman Construction, their own contract with Nike was for $433 million, of which Nike has paid $410 million. But Hoffman asserts that due to changes from the original contract, they are owed the full $48 million previously mentioned. This is not the first time Nike has been accused of owing money. In 1991, a group of contractors filed a similar lawsuit alleging the footwear giant refused to pay them in full. While liens are pretty common in the construction industry, this case is unique in both the large alleged amount owed as well as the number of different contractors implicated. Some contractors involved have even filed lawsuits already. On Friday, the Oregon Supreme Court granted lawmakers an extension to redraw political districts this year. The redrawing of these political districts will effectively decide who holds power in the state for the next decade. The decision was reached largely with consideration to the difficulties caused by COVID-19 and will allow lawmakers to disregard constitutional deadlines. In the original provisions, if lawmakers failed to meet the deadline, the responsibility to redraw these maps would have fallen to Secretary of State Shamiya Fagan. Fagan was willing and eager to take on the job. But because the U.S. Census Bureau said it will not be able to provide accurate population information until August 15th, at the earliest, the extension has been granted. Lawmakers now have, until September 27th, over two months more than the July 1st deadline stipulated in the state constitution, but the extension will still demand a quicker-than-normal turnaround on the new map by lawmakers. They usually have three months to analyze census data, but now will only have 45 days. And that's if the Census Bureau meets their mid-August deadline. Republicans are happy with the decision and are continuing calls to establish a nonpartisan commission to handle redistricting. They fear being at a disadvantage due to Democratic control of the legislature. However, Democrats have shown no signs of planning to form such a commission and will likely proceed without doing so. According to Oregon Representative Earl Blumenauer, any hopes for a new bridge across the Columbia River will have to include a light rail line. However, Blumenauer is hopeful. President Biden's expansive new infrastructure package includes billions of dollars to fund transportation projects, and the congressman believes Oregon and Washington can secure funding. From 2010 to 2013, these two states spent over $175 million designing a new bridge to cross the Columbia, but ultimately that failed. Among many contributing factors to this defeat was opposition from Vancouver, Washington officials to a light rail. But Blumenauer is confident that this time around, the governors from both states are in agreement a light rail is necessary. Any plan without one, he believes, will be quickly passed on by the Biden administration. The Biden infrastructure package is explicitly tied to pushing the country towards a low-carbon future, and a bridge for automobiles alone will not satisfy that agenda. Representative Peter DeFazio of Oregon chairs the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee and has weekly conversations with Blumenauer. Without explicitly stating DeFazio's support, Blumenauer said the federal government will not approve any plan for a bridge across the Columbia without a light rail. And finally, some good news. Portland's very own Oaks Park is set to reopen on April 17th. The amusement park had never missed a season in more than a century, but that changed last year with the arrival of COVID-19. However, after more than a year of being closed, they are planning for a limited opening later this month, with the goal to be operating seven days a week by June 14th. Of course, restrictions will be in place to promote the safety of patrons and workers alike. In pre-pandemic times, daily visitors could reach numbers as high as 16,000, This year, they expect to serve about 10% of that. Masks will be required except in designated dining areas. Queues will be physically distanced, and sanitation efforts will be ramped up. Staff will also have daily health checks. The Oaks Park experience will surely be different, but park officials are hopeful they can provide a safe and fun visit for all. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we'll hear from Emma Nathanson, a reporter for Street Roots. She spoke with Julia Oppenheimer and Andy Lindbergh about youth activism right here in Portland.
1: You're listening to X-Ray in the Morning with myself, Julia Oppenheimer, and my friend, Andy Lindbergh. And we are joined now by Emma Nathanson of Street Roots. Um, Emma is going to speak with us about her recent piece on youth activism in Portland. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Um, well, I am 19 years old, and I'm currently in Portland on a gap year before going to college. And uh, this year I'm interning with Street Roots. As a, yeah, an intern, I am in the editorial department, so I've been writing articles. And I'm really excited that I get to focus on youth and youth-related issues, because that often gets overlooked in publications.
1: Very cool. Um, what drives you as a youth activist?
2: Um, what drives me? Well, I mean, I'd say after reporting on this story and talking about so many other youth activists, what drives me is looking at others and seeing the incredible work they're doing. Um, you know, there's so much injustice in the world. And there's, you know, in Portland, there's so many youth activists doing so much amazing work and seeing how they're able to push through so many boundaries, whether that be, you know, uh, adults underestimating them or, just lack of resources and funding the true power of youth I think really comes through and um, just this huge amount of energy that young people have for changing the world. Do you
1: think that Gen Z's approach to activism is different than older generations?
2: Yes and no. So every generation has to lean back on the same principles. They're fighting for the same things and um, Often, one place I saw maybe a larger divergence was in the election where um, this year, a lot of the members of Gen Z were voting for the first time, which is very exciting. Um, and a lot, many people were very excited about it and were phone banking. But um, some of the youth I spoke to, it wasn't their sole focus. Um, a lot of the youth that I talked to from the police reform and accountability organization here in Portland, it's called Raising Justice, they talked a lot about how, you know, you should be combining tactics. You can vote, you can phone bank, you can work with elected officials, and you should be focusing also on direct action, protesting, you know, making a, uh, diversifying your tactics. Um, And also some focus more on the ballot measures this year. Um, So, uh, the Youth Environmental Justice Alliance and the Multnomah Youth Commission were two groups that teamed up to fight for Youth Pass, which is, was part of the Let's Get Moving ballot measure. And mm-hmm. even though that failed, they're now searching for federal funding. But um, so they were committed in that way. And um, I think youth now are—they they take from the lessons of the past, but they're also much more willing to push every possible societal norm. And um, So, yeah, diversify the strategies and diversify what they're working on.
3: How how has activism changed as a result of of the the pandemic in this last year being being uh, kept uh, separate from one another? How has that uh, affected uh, uh, young activists?
0: Yeah,
2: so this is a this is a big issue in the beginning, you know in march everything was shutting down for Mm -hmm. everyone but for young people it felt it felt heavy because you know when you especially when you're in high school you're thinking about your future you're always being asked to think about your future and Mm -hmm. suddenly your school is shutting down your social life is shut down maybe your jobs are shut down even the small things prom and graduation you're losing all these things and so everything was heavy and hard but all of these youth activists amazed me because they were able to just despite everything like transform the world of youth activism. I talked to Alana Nayak, who's the policy director at Raising Justice and a senior at St. Mary's Academy in Portland. And she told me that over the summer, right after the pandemic began, they were working a nine to five job, completely over Zoom. They hmm. saw it and they shifted it. Um, Lane Schaefer from the Multnomah Youth Commission told me that, you know, it took a matter of weeks to switch things. And the switch to Zoom was good for some people. Um, Nico Emmanuel Henderson who's the communications director at Raising Justice, was starting his freshman year at the University of Chicago last year. And he was able to contribute to the organization just as much as the people who are working in Portland. Um, and they did well because they were really flexible. But for some people, Zoom made things really difficult. I talked to Violeta Mata, who's an intern at Yeja. Um, Now she's a Portland Community College student. But when the pandemic struck, she moved to a cramped house with her siblings and her grandparents and it was noisy and there was bad Wi-Fi so she moved outside um, this is in September and when she moved outside for the better connection the wildfires hit and so mm-hmm. she was coughing and her lungs were aching and then she had to move back inside and be back on bad Wi-Fi and she also told me stories of her fellow interns who had to quit to work full time to support their family so there was a a lot of difficulty in this pandemic and um they're still adapting and they're still working on it um but i think overall they were able to be really flexible and their perseverance is really incredible what do you feel like some of the big
1: issues that um youth are active around these days are
2: so all of them in a (laughs) sense
0: but you know
2: like if there's an issue out there that you're passionate about there's someone working on it um but specifically, I would say over the summer, we saw the, you know, a historic Black Lives Matter movement. And there mm-hmm. were some youth organizations at the center, um, Fridays for Freedom, the PDX Black Youth Movement here in Portland. But um, I didn't talk to people from those organizations. So I talked to people kind of on the outskirts of that who were definitely still participating, but weren't necessarily mm-hmm. leading everything. Um, but they all feel like racial justice and um, changing the criminal justice system is a super high priority um all, all of them participated in the protests and led some part of them in some way um i would also say youth are now really focused on climate change and talking about that it's every year seems more and more pressing um and i think what's really incredible is there are these huge issues that they're trying to tackle like you know racial justice as a whole climate change as a whole but um I think they're being really intelligent in taking specific elements. So um, the youth working on environmental justice are specifically targeting transportation justice because they can see how if you have access to transportation, your carbon footprint is lower. And also that helps communities and lower income neighborhoods who don't have access to cars or, you know, there's a lot there. So I think although it's a huge spectrum and there are huge issues, um, they're really able to pinpoint
1: places they can make change. Yeah, it seems like um, maybe one way that Gen Z's approach to activism is different, maybe better, is is very targeted. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you said, targeting, thinking about transportation equity as a climate change issue and really working on that is such a, a kind of a novel approach to a really big issue in my mind. Have you, so you've been reporting on on these youth movements um, through Street Roots, have have there been some, I know you mentioned a few people you met already, have there been some really like standout activists you've met or movements you've seen?
2: Yeah, I would call every youth who is able to balance school and family life and maybe a job and activism, like a really incredible activist, Mm. and they're all doing really incredible work, but um, the ones I've been able to talk to that I, Found and just really stood out to me, um, Luis Alonso Velasco, who is the board chair at Next Step, which is a political advocacy organization. He um, is 16 and is already the board chair of his organization, and they're doing really incredible work surrounding voting. Um, the Vote 16 campaign, which is aimed to lower the school board voting age to 16 in Oregon, um, and they're helping endorse a lot of candidates for the November, 2020 election. There's been incredible work there. Um, Raising justice, which I've mentioned before they're the uh, police accountability group, they're doing amazing work there in a bunch of different um, government and non-governmental councils right now, trying to reimagine what public safety looks like. Um, And then I've talked to, like I said before, people from the Multnomah youth commission, specifically Wayne Schaefer and, um, you know, they, the, with Youth Pass, they've been through so many hurdles. Youth Pass should be so, so Youth Pass is um, getting free climate access for all uh, PPS mm-hmm. students, and that seems like a no-brainer to a lot of these youth, um, but there have been so many hurdles, and now, you know, they've reached, gone through all the different state options, and now they're finally going to federal, which I find really incredible, um, and then the youth with the Youth Environmental Justice Alliance, YASIA, they're also working on Youth Pass with um, the Multnomah Commission, so really everyone's doing incredible work, but those are the people I specifically um, talked about.
3: You're listening to X-Ray in the Morning with Andy and Julia. We're speaking with Emma Nathanson about youth activism in Portland. Uh, we, we talk a lot about how uh, social media um, can be very divisive, um, but it's also a major platform for activi- uh, activism especially when it comes to reaching the hearts and minds of, of young people. Uh, What's, what's your relationship with social media and activism?
2: Um, Mine personally, I think I I find it to be a good tool. I find it um, helpful, but I I think really the, the youth I talked to were able to illustrate this the best in that um, they were able to find a lot of protests and other events and, form coalitions with other groups because of social media. But also, um, they talked about some concerns they had. Uh, Lane Schaefer from the Multnomah Youth Commission, he talked to me about how he thought some forms of social media were replacing longer lasting forms of activism. Um, You know, One post on Instagram, uh, one update on Facebook, those aren't Mm. going to be the same as organizing with your friends and family. And even though they're still really important, it's easy for people to trade one for the other. Um, right. really I did my part as I posted.
3: Yeah. Posting something as opposed to going to a march or showing up in person. That makes some sense. Yeah.
2: Exactly.
1: On the flip side yeah. though, you have like the, the TikTok movement start started by the K pop kids, right? That got all the bought all the tickets to the Trump rally. Um those kind of things seem to be really effective tools of that young people are using for through social media to affect change?
2: Yeah, and for sure, social media is pushing um, activism forward. Always concerned, but yeah, it's been transformative. And I think that's also a good answer to your question about how this generation is different, is that these these young people um, are really relying on social media as a way to make connections in a way that just wasn't accessible to previous generations. But I'd also say that I heard from Violeta Mata from who works with Yeja, she told me that she's a person of color, and all day at Yeja, she was working with, you know, talking about the mistreatment of people of color. And then she got home and she'd be on her phone, which is normally like an escape, and it'd be full of information and graphics and educational material about the mistreatment of people of color. So she just felt, in her words, like she was being bombarded with it all the time. Mm. Um, so there's, there's pluses and there's oh. minuses, for sure. What advice
1: do you have for young activists today, if you have any? So
2: I'm going to rely on the words of the, the youth I talked to. Um, they all, you know, there's so many different organizations, so many different sides of the political spectrum that are uh, represented in those organizations, but there's one place they unite, and it's their belief that everyone can be an activist. Um, and some people, uh, they told me, don't have a choice. Uh, Taji from Raising Justice told me that some people have to be activists because their body is political in this country, meaning that because of the way they look, they're always defending themselves from um, microaggressions or outright know, racism or whatever the, you know, whatever their identity is being targeted as. Um. But some people just fall into it. Some people see an issue that they are passionate about and see how they can change it. Um, some people just fall into it completely by accident. They, their friends all do it, so they join. But basically, they all believe that anyone can be an activist. Um, it's just about finding a thing you love and finding where you think you can make the most change and really pursuing that, um, and embracing it. And so uh, their advice is just to, you know, go out and find that thing. Um, and that's, you have a track for the rest of your life on how you can change the world. Nice.
3: I like that. Find your thing.
2: So this, (laughs) Emma, this is the cover story on street roots this week yes this is the cover story and um today actually vendors all over portland are hitting the streets with uh, a copy of this so if you can go out and support street roots and the vendors um, it's a dollar per paper very cool emma nathanson from street
1: roots thank you so much for joining us this morning thank you so much for having me have a great day that was emma nathanson she is an intern and reporter at street
0: roots writing about youth activism Thanks to Emma for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing, and thank you, democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
3: X-Ray.